More than 95,000 people filed sex abuse claims against the Boy Scouts of America before a key deadline passed last week in its Chapter 11 bankruptcy case. It's an astounding figure that, according to victims' attorneys, exceeds the number of claims ever filed against the Catholic Church. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. The avalanche of sex abuse filings that forced the youth organization into bankruptcy has its origins in a Portland abuse case from a decade ago. A multi-million dollar jury award made it clear that the Boy Scouts could face massive liability. And after the case, the Oregonian and other news organizations fought for and won the release of the Boy Scouts' secret files on known abusers. We're revisiting a conversation from February with Molly Young, an editor for The Oregonian and Oregon Live, who reported on the bankruptcy, as well as Charlie Hinkle, a longtime First Amendment attorney who argued the case for the news organization. We talked about the fight for the so-called perversion files, how their release exposed what the organization knew about abusers in its adult ranks, and what bankruptcy could mean for the Boy Scouts in Oregon and nationally. Here's that conversation. Charlie Hinkle, Molly Young, thanks for taking time to be here today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. Molly, let's start with you. Um, Take us back to when we first learned that the Boy Scouts of America are filing for bankruptcy. How did you learn about this story and and report it out? The Boy Scouts of America have been... You know, it's been clear for some time that they would likely seek bankruptcy protections. And so several attorneys reached out to the Oregonian saying that it was likely coming, you know, imminently. And so at that point, we started reporting as much as we could about the organization, both here in Oregon and nationwide. And how clear was it that Oregon was playing a pretty significant role in this national story? At first, you know... We weren't sure. At least I wasn't sure. I moved to Oregon um, actually just after the big verdict was delivered, I believe. So I did not know about that significance. And we learned over time about the role that, you know, a crucial Oregon case played in sort of being the trigger point to all, all of these lawsuits being filed against the Boy Scouts. Well, Charlie, that might be a good transition to you. Um, can you walk us through the history of the Oregonians' involvement in the Boy Scout case and how you became involved? Well, the Oregonian has uh, historically had a very high interest in uh, court access and access to court records, and it has been involved in a number of cases over the years uh, that have established some very important precedents uh, in this regard. And these cases are typically very hard fought because – uh, they go to court uh, because the defendant or the, whoever is the possessor, the custodian of the files, mm-hmm. doesn't want them released. I don't know the origins of the litigation against the Boy Scouts nationwide, but uh, along with the uh, awakening, the emergence of claims against the Roman Catholic Church for sexual abuse among its priests, people began to talk about and uh, bring cases concerning uh similar activity in the Boy Scouts. And one of the leading cases, as it turned out, one of the most important cases occurred here in Portland when six men 
uh, in about 2010, I think it was, filed mm-hmm. uh, a lawsuit, and it was uh, potentially was going to be a, uh, a nationwide precedent involving claims against the scouts. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. During the course of preparation for the trial, the plaintiff's attorneys requested the Boy Scouts organization, the national group, to release any documents that may have had that would shed light on its knowledge or its uh, understanding of what had been going on. Because the plaintiffs, these six men uh, here in Oregon who sued the scouts, were claiming not only compensatory damages, this is how it damaged my mental health, this is how it damaged my personality and, and things like that, but they were also seeking punitive damages. Because they suspected that the scouts knew about this pattern of behavior on the part of its scoutmasters. The trial court here ordered the Boy Scouts to release those files to the plaintiffs, not to the public, but to the plaintiffs. Uh, It turned out there were more than 1,200 files that the National Boy Scouts organization kept. Uh, and each one of those files related to a specific scout master, not to a specific incident or a specific boy who happened to be a scout. So the scouts knew that there were at least 1,200 of their scout leaders who had been accused of sexually abusing their uh, the boys in their scout troops. And this was over a, a roughly two-decade period, right? If this wasn't the entirety of the Boy Scouts' existence? Oh, no, no. I, I don't know how far back they did go, but I, I think – Two decades is probably a pretty good estimate yeah. of, you know, who knows what the origin was. Who was the first priest to abuse a boy or a girl? Who was the first scoutmaster? Right. I don't know. Um, you know, we take on all sorts of First Amendment issues and cases and open records cases. What was important about this case? Well, this case was a little different because it involved court exhibits. These files now have been produced to the plaintiffs, and the plaintiffs want to put them in evidence in front of the jury. Uh, the Boy Scouts organization resisted that, too. They said, well, that doesn't have anything to do with your client, uh, who happened to be a man named Lewis. Of these six plaintiffs, they decided to go forward to trial with only one of them mm-hmm. to see – to sort of set a precedent for for the other cases. So when Lewis went to trial, the trial judge – said, yes, he can put these files into evidence. So they were put into evidence in front of the jury in in their totality. Nothing was censored. Nothing was taken out. The jury had access to these 1,200 case files over the course of two decades, as you say, that named the leaders, named the victims, and presumably said a little bit about what happened. Because I'm sure claims had been made before, but none had specifically gone to a jury trial. So the jury had these files. They were they were publicly discussed during the trial. Mm-hmm. Reporters were there. The public was there. So the Oregonian knew that these files existed and had a general idea of what was in them. What was it like um, actually you know, winning an argument to make those files readily available, not just to the jury, but to uh, every Oregonian or anyone who wanted to to see them. Right. Well, at the end of the trial, after the jury returned its verdict, then the Oregonian, along with uh, some other news media, asked the judge to release the documents. Uh, Let us see them. The the jury has seen them. They played a role in this very important verdict that was returned, and the public has a right to see what the evidence was. Uh, The Oregonian has long taken the same position with all kinds of evidence. We're entitled to hear the testimony. Mm -hmm. We're entitled to see the exhibits. That's what the open court's promise of the Oregon Constitution 
Constitution means, that you don't do justice in secret. You do it publicly where the public can review it. So we asked, uh, the Oregonian asked the judge to release them, and he said yes, he would, provided that the uh, names of the victims were blacked out, were redacted. He said there was no real news value mm-hmm. in who had been a victim, but there is news value a great deal of legitimate public interest in knowing the history, the pattern of what the Boy Scouts knew and when they knew it. So he granted the Oregonian's motion to come into the courtroom and and review all of these uh, files. That's when the Boy Scouts um, went to the Oregon Supreme Court to say, no, don't release anything. Mm -hmm. And we took the opposite tack. We also went to the Oregon Supreme Court and said, yes, uh, affirm the trial judge, uh, judge's judgment, but except for the part where he redacted the victims, we we think that since the jury saw everything, that the public should see everything. And what did the Supreme Court rule? The Supreme Court ruled that – well, let me back up a moment. The, the Oregonian's position was that the open court's provision in the Oregon Constitution – And let me say that a little differently because actually the wording is no court shall be secret. Mm -hmm. So it's a prohibition on secrecy in the courts. And we argued that that constitutional provision meant that none of the evidence can be secret, that it all has to be uh, available for public inspection. The Oregon Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't. We're going to, we have reviewed the historical record going back to, uh, they often go back to Magna Carta even. You know, I mean, they trace the whole history of how the law developed in England for the purpose of determining what did the framers of the Oregon Constitution mean in 1857 when they wrote that no secrecy clause. And the court concluded that it did not necessarily mean that all exhibits have to be released to the public. Yes, the courtroom must be open. The trial must be open. The testimony must must be heard by the public. uh, But there's not necessarily a requirement that the judge release every single piece of paper uh, that goes into evidence. The Supreme Court ruled that it was a matter of discretion Mm -hmm. on the part of the trial judge. And once they made that decision, it was pretty, we were pretty much home clear because the judge had exercised his discretion, the trial judge, that is, and he had laid out the reasons, a very persuasive um, opinion that he issued. Uh, he laid out his reasons why it was in the public interest to disclose these documents, but not in the public interest to release all the names of all the victims going back these many years. And so the Supreme Court affirmed it. It, it had no trouble at all brushing aside the Boy Scouts argument. They mm-hmm. said, no, we have a, a promise of open courts here, Boy Scouts, and you're not going to keep these things sealed. So the result was that these 1,240 some odd uh, files were released to the Oregonian and to the other media. How significant did that feel at the time? We knew right away uh, the Oregonian was getting calls and I was getting calls from lawyers around the country uh, saying, we understand you've gotten these files. We'd like to see them too because they were representing other Boy Scouts, other men who had uh, who had claimed to be abused during right. their time as Scouts. So we knew right away that there was a uh, widespread public interest uh, around the country in seeing what these files contained. 
I didn't have any idea how many of them would be useful in other cases, but they certainly proved useful in this case, in the Oregon case, because the jury came back with a verdict of $18 million in punitive damages. They awarded over a million dollars in compensation mm-hmm. for the actual mental and emotional damage injury that the, that the scout, the former scout had, had incurred. But on top of that, they said, well, the scouts knew about this. They covered it up. They never uh, did anything to ensure that no future scoutmaster would be uh, guilty of this. And so we're going to sock them with this punitive damage award, punishment for their failure to police their own organization. So that established a very important precedent that other juries around the country might take into account too. I mean, plaintiff's attorneys in Florida or California or New York would say, well, if this guy suffering the abuse that he sustained could get a judgment of $18 million in punitive damages, maybe we can too. Plaintiff's lawyers always like to ride a boat that is sailing already. <laughs> Especially a boat that uh, is sailing with uh, that much um, that much money attached as well right. from the jury. Let's take a break and then, Molly, we can talk a little bit more about your reporting and, and uh, what you found uh, looking into the Boy Scouts uh, history here in Oregon. Molly, uh, Charlie mentioned that this was a nationwide organization, and um, obviously, I, I think looking at your reporting, it was kind of mind-blowing to me seeing the scale of the Boy Scouts' financial assets and property holdings and whatnot. How big was this organ, or is this organization? Sure. So the Boy Scouts, um, their national organization is based near Dallas, and we have at least a glimpse of what their Um, financial holdings are worth because as a nonprofit, they um, need to file um, filings every year with the government. And the national nonprofit estimates that it has more than um, $1 billion in assets. And it's really hard to know, though, uh, you know, what is not recorded in those filings because for tax purposes, they they likely aren't listing everything. And the same is true for the main chapter, or I should say the biggest chapter here in Oregon, which is actually based just on the street from the Oregonian, um, the Cascade Pacific Council. It covers most of Northwest Oregon, and it has over $40 million in assets, but it's facing the same thing where it doesn't record all of its assets. Mm-hmm. So we really don't know how much money it's really worth. When people think of the Boy Scouts, they think of, you know, outdoor adventures, learning new skills and trades, but they also own property in Oregon, right? Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about where the Boy Scouts own property in Oregon from what you're able to glean in, in just a few days of reporting here? Right. So there are five Boy Scouts councils that operate here in Oregon, at least in part. Some of them are based in either Washington or Idaho, but reach into Oregon. But just looking at the, um, the big one here based in Portland, they operate a handful of camps and that's a, a big moneymaker for them. And their properties are really desirable. Um, they have one camp right, right along the coastline near Tillamook and some other camps, um, kind of in Marion County, um, wilderness. So all of those properties are, are likely quite valuable and not reflected in, in public tax filings. 
Um, and how many Boy Scouts uh, are there in, in the Portland area? Do we have any? Are we talking thousands? Do we know? At least publicly, the numbers aren't broken down by city, but the, the big chapter here based in Portland covers 20,000 scouts and 9,000 adult volunteers. Have there been more cases in the Portland area uh, since the landmark case we're talking about in, in 2010 and 2012 um, involving uh, allegations of sex abuse? There have been many more cases that Opening the files really allowed um, former scouts to to maybe find out that they weren't alone and and use those records to then go ahead and file suit. And so Oregon actually has quite a permissive statute of limitations, so became one of the first states where there was really this flood of of lawsuits in response to the the files being released. You said a flood. Does that continue until today or or do we still see these types of cases pop up? Yes. So there were hundreds of cases that have been filed in the past decade. But one issue was that some states have much stricter statutes of limitations that end um, really once children become adults. Mm -hmm. So at that point, they may not, you know, realize the impact of the abuse or even know what happened to them. But recently, lawmakers in several states, including New York and California, opened a temporary window where those statutes of limitations did not apply. And so that really opened almost the floodgates again. Um, And that is what the Boy Scouts were facing when they filed bankruptcy. That makes a lot more sense, right? In terms of you have these big states with many more thousands of uh, potential cases uh, that that can add up. Right. You know, I think the average uh, Joe or Jane, when they think of filing for bankruptcy, might think about, you know, not being able to balance their checkbook or or not having enough funds or whether it's a business. I don't know. Um, What does it mean when a nonprofit of this scale files for bankruptcy? What does that mean? You know, this is really unprecedented in in an organization so large especially one that you know this is the nationwide branch it's it's not a a local um, offshoot so what they're really hoping to do is they want to survive but they want to address all of the claims filed across the country in kind of one final swoop and so all of those lawsuits that they were facing and that were still ongoing will be stalled and the victims will need to then file claims with the bankruptcy court. And so they're hoping that they can address those claims, pay out those claims and come out at the end of the day, you know, surviving that whole process. And by calling the bank, they're calling Delaware, right? So uh, you have California, Texas, you know, Oregon, all these states uh, get on the phone and call Delaware. Right. What else uh, about this story stands out to you, Molly, in in your reporting uh, that we haven't talked about? You know, we can talk about uh, thousands of people maybe filing claims, but one question that really stands out for me is how the bankruptcy court will address these individual claims. And here in Oregon, there were a handful of lawsuits that, you know, will be stalled because of the bankruptcy proceeding, including um, one suit filed by a man, I believe, in his 60s. And that case was about ready to go to trial. And so the impact on the individual level is just is really um, 
quite profound. Right. When you're talking about someone in their 60s, they've carried this weight with them their whole lives, and now they're going to have to wait longer. Exactly. What can you tell us? Um, I know that you obviously weren't reporting on this case a, a decade ago, but um, do we have a sense of who these scout masters or volunteers were or are? Are they? Are, is there like a profile of a person um, who was involved in these allegations, or kind of does it cover the gamut? Can you talk about that at all? I don't know that there's a certain profile, but I one link that lawyers told me was that. No, often by the time these leaders were banned from the organization, they had been reported multiple times that, you know, it likely wasn't one abuse report that led to them being banished. It was repeated behavior. And, and that has really what that's what's led to all of the lawsuits. And Charlie, you mentioned that earlier. We were talking about systemic institutionalized um, issues at the time, right, with the Catholic uh, sex abuse cases. I guess, what do you think of when you think of kind of where we are now in 2020 and look back on um, both your work for the Oregonian and kind of where we are societally as as we address these issues? Well, the bankruptcy proceedings are unfortunate in a way because it, uh, it it's it, it's going to mean justice delayed, and there's an old saying in the law: justice delayed is justice denied. Many of these uh, claimants are uh, in advanced years, and who knows what that will be? It's a way for the defendant to shield their assets and to uh, wiggle out of the requirement the, uh, of uh, paying uh, full compensation to these victims. I think there may also be a consequence in terms of other defendants. In the case that we're talking about, the Oregonian case from uh, earlier this decade, last decade now, right. um, the, the prince, one of the defendants was the uh, Latter-day Saints Church, the Mormon Church. Mm-hmm. And they settled the case before it went to trial. Now, settlement implies that there was some money paid. I don't know if there was or not, but presumably there was. But potential plaintiffs or actual plaintiffs now maybe have more incentive to name the local sponsors of various scout troops to go after uh, other assets. The the pattern of the concealment was really extraordinary here and uh, the failure of the Boy Scouts to really police their own organization. But it's also an indication of the failure of the sponsors, the Mormon church or any other church or organization that may have sponsored one of uh, one of these troops. The amount of money that a, an individual plaintiff uh, will be able to recover is probably going to be compromised to some extent. Any judgments that have already been received and not paid will have to go through the bankruptcy court now too. And the bankruptcy judge will have to decide who gets what percentage of their of their claim. Yeah, this is a big deal and it has huge repercussions for thousands of people around yes, the country. Yes, and I wonder if there's insurance. Did the Boy yeah. Scouts have insurance that uh, the, the claimants might now look to? I, I don't know. And Molly, what else are you thinking about when you're thinking about this story and these issues? Just building on what um, Charlie was saying, one big issue that attorneys foresee in the bankruptcy proceedings is whether or not the local chapters or those sponsor organizations like churches will have to pay into what victims will be compensated with. 
the Boy Scouts are expected to to say that the local chapters should not have to contribute yet at the same time should be protected uh, from all future claims. And so that will really be one key argument in the proceedings is, you know, how much, if anything, that local chapters, like the one based here in Portland, have to pay in. Well, thank you for your reporting. And Charlie, thank you for your work on this. I mean, it's obviously a huge story with national implications that began here, um, maybe in Oregon a a decade ago. Yes, well, the Oregonian deserves a lot of credit for uh, digging in and, and and persevering until we got the documents. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or share it on Facebook or Twitter. It helps others find the show. You can support the podcast and our newsroom's local journalism with a subscription to Oregon Live. Go to OregonLive.com slash pod support and thanks. Until next time.